You're listening to MedTech Monday, a podcast series about medical technologies, digital health, trends, entrepreneurship, innovation, and commercialization. Brought to you by the New England Medical Innovation Center, otherwise known as NEMIC. NEMIC is the premier MedTech venture studio and business accelerator supporting regulated medical technologies to achieve successful fundraising and commercialization. Explore how we can support your venture at www.nemiccenter.com. That's N-E-M-I-C-E-N-T-E-R.com. Now, let's get into this week's episode. You're listening to MedTech Monday. I'm your host, Danielle Sturm. Today's guest is Alan Humphrey, a senior system engineer at Zymedica. And as you may know, we've been running a sponsorship program with Zymedica for these past few podcasts. And so Zymedica is our podcast sponsor today. And Zymedica is a medical device design and development company that actually was just acquired by a company called Veranex. This acquisition grows Veranex into a global tech-enabled service provider dedicated to the medical technology industry that accelerates speed to market, controlled development costs, development risk mitigation, and accelerated market viability assessment. This includes engineering design services, regulatory, clinical, and market access. So really a full service provider. So Alan, thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell us a bit about your background in the medical device industry and your role at Zymedica now moving into Veranex? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been at Zymedica now for just over five years. Prior to that, I have spent the rest of my career also in sort of the medical technology R&D space, primarily working at consultancies in this sort of, you know, new product development R&D area. So ultimately, my role and my title is a a senior systems engineer and and what that job title does here at Cymatica and uh, at a lot of other companies is to essentially be the sort of person responsible for how the products ultimately come together. A lot of complex systems have both electrical, mechanical, software, you know, human factors and industrial design and a lot of other moving parts that all ultimately have to work together and create a cohesive project. And so my job is to sort of kind of bridge those gaps, you know, make sure that the problems that are affecting the different teams are understood and any place where the teams have to come together, you know, electrical and software obviously have to work heavily together. Mechanical engineering team has to work with those teams as well. So my job is to sort of help manage those interfaces and make sure that the, the product as a whole works together. Mm-hmm. I have a question too, just because of some of our listeners and a lot of conversations I have are with young people looking to get into the medical device industry. So what did you study in school to be able to do this now? Sure. Yeah. So I um. I studied, I had a double major in both mechanical engineering and biomedical engineering. And so on the mechanical engineering side, I really focused on sort of classical mechanics and really was looking to gain just sort of those base engineering skills. On the biomedical engineering side, I gained actually a little bit more experience in the electrical and software side. So I spent a lot of time studying body signals, how you know, different areas of the body, things like the heart function as sort of an electrical system. And really from there, I've just always enjoyed, you know, learning new technologies, learning new things and getting that exposure to different areas. So, you know, I was never the best mechanical engineer in the room. I was never the best electrical or software engineer, but I kind of found my niche as kind of, kind of knowing a little bit about everything. You know, I know enough to be dangerous. I know enough to ask hard questions or ask you know, drive discussion in a certain direction, but I'm not the person who's going to be there, you know, doing the hands-on engineering at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Thanks for sharing that. So on today's episode, we're going to be really diving in and talking about the development phase within the medical 
product development cycle and really the types of unexpected outcomes that can arise during that phase. Alan, I'd love to ask you, what are some of the biggest challenges that you've seen in your career that small and large companies face during that development phase of a new medical device? Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. I think the probably the simplest answer, which you know may or may not be the answer that always applies, is the biggest challenge ultimately in R and D and and this type of development that we're talking about is sort of just dealing with the unknown or the unexpected. You know, no project I've ever been on has ever gone a hundred percent to the plan that we laid out. Nothing ever works the way we want it to. Uh, and in a lot of cases, a lot of those things are outside of your control or, or the control of the team that's working on the program. There's always some sort of external factor. I mean, you look at the last year and, and the impacts of something like COVID-19 on our ability to work and continue to develop the products. And like even now, I think we still see the impacts of you know, the supply chain impacts, the availability impacts, the you know, even the challenge of having a remote team all ultimately made our project plans a lot more difficult to follow and, and potentially added, you know, the need to work around some unexpected challenges that we couldn't have predicted, you know, six months or I guess at this point, a year and a half ago or, or more. I think what we see, you know, and those types of issues could be anything. I mean, they could be the design doesn't work as intended. They could be, you know, even changing stakeholders as companies move through time. Obviously, the people on the team, the leadership of the company might evolve and might change as a whole. And you obviously get some of those impacts from your competitors or from the other devices on the market. You might have a product that launches halfway through your development cycle that totally upsets the expectations of the market. And suddenly your product wouldn't be successful and you have to kind of pivot to explore. Mm-hmm. And then kind of the final one, which you know really hits more on the, the research, the R side of the R&D is, and in a lot of cases for the technology that we're working on, we're looking at new technology, doing something that hasn't been done before, trying to solve a problem that, that someone really hasn't looked at before. And so in that case, you're dealing with just the unknown. You know, it's exploratory, it's new science, it's areas where everything we learn is maybe the first or only the second time that someone's seen that problem or that particular circumstance. And so the ability to predict and estimate how that's going to affect the program is really hard kind of until you hit that moment of conflict. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting. I think when I think about like the challenges within developing on the research and development side or like working in that space, I don't like my brain automatically goes to kind of like what are those technical challenges? And I think it's like important to talk about like the non-technical challenges that arise too, because those are really like those outside forces of like stakeholders that might change how like what you guys are focusing on. So it's interesting to bring that up and just talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, a lot of the examples and a lot of the conversation will probably focus on technical because those are mm-hmm. things we see. But you know, again, looking at, you know, supply chain, looking at availability of resources, looking at even just, you know, how things on a global scale compete in ways that you'd never expect, right? In a world where, you know, processors and, and chips are kind of in a shortage because, everyone's using the same thing, whether it's your car, whether it's the smart speaker in your home, whether it's the medical device that we're trying to produce. And so those are the sorts of things that, you know, it's almost impossible to have a, have a web large enough to see everything changing and how that might impact your program. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of it actually turns more into how the team takes those unknowns, how they react and go through some sort of a process to resolve them that I think causes a lot of issues in the development cycle. Mm -hmm. 
So I think like, you know, commercializing a medical product is like a huge success just because of it, it's so challenging. And I, I want to ask the question to you or like these problems that you just like outlined, are these always what cause development projects to fail? And I don't like we at Nemec, we always try to not like say like what, you know, like what's going to cause things to fail or like, let's talk about it in a way where it's like, okay, how can we talk about the failures that we can learn from them so that they become better outcomes. Absolutely. So I'm trying to pose that in a way that's not like, okay, like what causes things to fail? But I would love to talk about that with you as well. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there are obviously scenarios where the problem, the unexpected event that occurs is just insurmountable, right? It is something where like the fundamental science, the fundamental theory of operation is flawed. You know, sometimes you th see things like just the laws of physics won't allow it. You know, you're trying to create something that just the current technology, the current, you know, things that we have access to in the world don't give us what we need. But I think that's probably not as common because a lot of those types of problems get sniffed out really early in development. You know, you can't get past that very early feasibility, that very early proof of concept because that fundamental sort of science won't ever work or doesn't currently work. The issue that I think we see on a lot of promising projects or projects that are getting, you know, midway to the back half of the program, it really just boils down to these type of unexpected issues are going to occur. And really the thing that causes the failure generally is actually more about how those problems are managed, how the team works through them and how those ultimately affect, you know, the time and the budget of the program. Because that's usually the thing that I think we see causes programs to fail later on the program is the timeline becomes too long. The money runs out before you get to a point where it could be a marketable project. And so it's not to say that the program couldn't have succeeded, but because of some of the steps that sort of happened along the way, we didn't reach that end goal that we were looking for. I just had a question too, just so like I can imagine and for the listeners too, like when you're working on this research and development phase, like at Zymeticon, like leading your teams, how many people are working on these programs and like who else is kind of like coming in and working with you to like make sure that these are like technologies that can be developed. What does that team look like? Yeah, it's a, I think the, the classic answer is it depends. I think so much of what we do is all over the spectrum in terms of complexity, in terms of, you know, mature science versus, you know, relatively immature concept of a product. And so, you know, there's, there's a lot that goes into that initial feasibility. I think usually what we focus on is, sort of three, I'll, I'll say three main pillars. As I go out, it might turn into four, but you know, ultimately the first one is that technical feasibility. So that's usually driven a lot more by the engineering team. That could be engineers of all sorts of backgrounds, whether they're you know, specialists in chemistry and, and biology, and they're working to develop you know, an assay or a, a new process for detecting certain things or, or imaging certain things within cells. That could be a mechanical engineer or an electrical engineer who's working to design, you know, a mechanism that can do the, the task or the need of the system. And that's really focused on, again, getting over that initial hump of, can we do this? Is it, is it possible to do what we're trying to do within the constraints that we have? The second main pillar really focuses more on the user usability, the sort of human factor sides of the product, which in a lot of cases, the question is like, just because the technology is there, you know, is there a path for this to actually be used? You know, there's 
can a surgeon do this procedure, right? Or are we too constrained by the size, by the specificity of what they need to do? I think now we actually hit a lot in the home care setting. You know, a lot of hospitals are trying to push more and more things to outpatient or home care. And that's another issue, which now you have a lot of people who have no experience with medical technology, no experience with medicine as a whole, who are ultimately responsible. And so, you know, on that side, can we take a really complicated science, a really complicated technology and translate it into something that, you know, a lay person is able to successfully execute? Mm -hmm. And then the final one obviously kind of hits the finance and the marketability of the product. So uh, there's a large investment in the cost of the product. There's a large investment in the development cycle. And ultimately, a lot of these products have to then become profitable shortly after they're, they're launched. And so there's building out that use case. What's the reimbursement strategy? What's the approach to gaining that revenue that ultimately will come from the development and will help fund future projects for, for our clients? Mm-hmm. I've got another question too, just kind of in that realm. So at Nemec, we see a lot of technologies come through and there's been like these keywords in the industry lately that's like big data, AI, like how can we use that to put into technologies? And I think like what we've learned and talked about is like there's still a lot of research and understanding that a lot of people like we need to have to really like implement those well into technologies. But in that technology realm, is that something like you, is that something that you work on or is that something you bring in? Like, I know I've had like Jeanette Toyjanova from Zymedica come on the podcast and she really talks about like that forward looking technologies that are going to be implemented. But how do you really like go about implementing new like immature technologies? Yeah, it's a, you know, it's tricky. And that that's really where you start to enter that phase with the development where it gets a lot more uncertain. So in a lot of cases, I think our practice looking at something like big data is to almost separate the two activities. You know, there's the, what do we need to collect the information to have the product and to, to make that successful? And how do we get there? Because it doesn't matter how much you invest in developing, you know, a large complex algorithm to help guide clinical decisions and doing things like that, if you don't have the data that you need to inform that. And a lot of the times actually we'll push clients or we'll push teams to focus on that product, focus on getting it out there and starting to get your data so that you can then inform and help understand how that larger scale data can be useful to clinicians or to the listening systems that the company is going to develop. But obviously there are cases where we're doing those two things in parallel. And and a lot of it, you know, that does tie a little bit back to that system level discussion is then it's how do we make sure that these two things work together, even though they may be fairly different teams or different skill sets, they're different needs, but as an ecosystem, that device and that, that sort of larger scale data system need to interact and work together as a as a unified product. Mm-hmm. Would you like to help communities recover from the opioid epidemic? If you said yes and you are a behavioral health professional or paraprofessional, then I have great news for you. Receive up to $250,000 in student loan repayment in exchange for service in a community disproportionately affected by the opioid crisis. Learn more and apply to join STAR LRP, and that stands for Substance Use Disorder Treatment and Recovery Loan Repayment Program. Use the link in the show notes or visit bhw.hrsa.gov to learn more. That's bhw, as in Behavioral Health Workforce, .hrsa. Dot gov. Applications close on July 22nd. 
Welcome back. I want to bring it back to kind of what we were talking about before I kind of, I went off and started asking you some questions about new technologies and how all the teams work together within the development process. But we were talking about, you know, what kind of causes early stage research and development projects to fail or what like are the challenges within that? And I know you had a lot more to speak about. The next kind of topic I was looking to speak about. And this is something I think we had a full podcast episode a few episodes ago with Mike Pereira, who's the chief strategy and technology officer at Zymedica. And it was about the advantages of partnering with experienced R&D teams for small companies. And I know you had kind of some thoughts on that as well. So I'd, I'd love to hear kind of what you think about that. Yeah. I mean, I think the interesting thing is that, you know, R&D is a it is a scale just like anything else. And in a lot of ways, it's very different from just general problem solving. It's very different from, you know, sustaining engineering or, or some of the other activities that exist within the medical device space, because there definitely is a skill and there's a, a learning that you get over time around how to just deal with that uncertainty. You know, there's, there's so many things that ultimately can happen. And I think what we see when you look at a team that has, you know, experience in this R&D space, who sort of does that professionally versus, you know, a, a group of people that might be coming together first time to do, do a new product development or something like that. You know, the thing that I see and kind of going back to the, the point earlier about, you know, unexpected problems and things that pop up, I think really the difference you see is the process and the ability to like work through those problems and, and step back from maybe the failure in the lab or the bad results in your initial pilot study and sort of really understand what's happening with the problem before you react to it. A lot of the times, I think what we see when we work with, with our development partners is once those problems start to come up, it can be really difficult to continue to approach the project and the plan and the, the whole process in a consistent way. All of us, you know, I, I think people in general sort of immediately start trying to jump on fixing problems, right? We're seeing an issue we're seeing something that we know we can improve. So let's make that better. Let's take the time to move these things forward. What happens in a lot of those scenarios is people start to focus on the closest fires. They focus on the visible problems. They focus on the ones that are cropping up maybe more often or cropped up, you know, in a little bit more of an embarrassing way, like maybe in front of a, a client or in front of a demo in front of clinicians, something went wrong. And so there's, there's sort of some weight behind what happened or the, the scenario and what that leads to is we're not necessarily always taking that time to step back and work through the problem and understand the larger impact. And kind of going back to that point a little bit earlier, if you're just always putting out the problems or putting out the fires as they come up, you end up sort of potentially burning that safety net, right? You burn the time, you burn the budget that you had allocated for the unexpected on things that they're not trivial, but maybe aren't as important in the grand scheme of the program. And as a result, you end up in a situation where when something major comes through, you don't have the money, you don't have the time to address it. And that's ultimately what sort of causes the program to flounder a little bit because you're in this position of we can't move forward because this problem is preventing it. Don't really have what we need to resolve it and continue forward. And I think like, honestly, it's not even something that's to say that People who are inexperienced with R&D aren't bad engineers or bad companies or bad teams. I, I think this is just a, a result of, you know, smart people just being exposed to something that they don't do a lot. And that, that moment to sort of 
step back, look away from, you know, the thing on fire right in front of you and kind of go back to that bigger picture is, is a hard thing to do. And that's where I do go back to. It is a little bit of a skill to kind of accept that you're going to have to do that. You're going to have to be uncomfortable for a little while until you find that path forward that ultimately will, will help you succeed. Within the, like your career in the industry, is that something you've seen on like R and D teams in the past or like competitors of you guys like is that something that is kind of like an industry standard of like people are trying to like put out the fires as they come is that something that Medica does differently I don't know that we necessarily do it differently I I think a lot of companies that that are specialists in in R&D and this type of new product development probably have similar skills but I think Zymedica has a process and a system that I think is effective at, at working through these types of issues and I think you know, one of the things that I find really interesting and really unique about, about how we approach these problems is having sort of the full gambit of roles represented, you know, having not just engineering, but we have the, you know, regulatory and sort of marketing capabilities. We have the human factors, industrial design, and sort of more user-focused members of the team in-house which a lot of companies would like farm out to a consultancy or farm out to a consultant for specific tasks. It does mean that I think when we hit these types of roadblocks, we're able to kind of get the whole story and we're not trying to make decisions with, you know, maybe only part of the picture or with only a couple of those core perspectives in the room as we do mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Do you have any examples of any projects you've worked on kind of that you've applied this like problem solving process too? Yeah, I think there's, you know, I think there's a lot of examples that I've seen because, you know, the reality is not most R&D projects don't get all the way through for, you know, a a lot of different reasons, kind of like we discussed, you know, I think the, like a, not necessarily a specific example, but a, a common thing that we see is as products sort of develop in maturity, something that follows alongside it, you know, and a lot of these examples will focus a little bit more on like technical issues because it's it's easiest to speak about those right now is a lot of things that we'll see is you start to not just make your device more mature, but also the assessment, the testing that you put it through also starts to become more mature. And a lot of times what we'll see is suddenly a device that's working really, really well on the bench under certain conditions suddenly doesn't seem to be working at all. It might seem to be, you know, almost, you know, years away from being successful once it's put into a more realistic scenario, like an animal study or a cadaver study that might be used to collect some additional data. I think a product that comes to mind that had sort of a similar issue and and I think highlights a little bit of that challenge of just because the problem seems obvious doesn't necessarily mean that the solution and the way to fix it is. And so a couple of years ago, we were working to develop a product that was using of a, a light curing material or adhesive. And the focus of this product was to try and reduce or uh, sort of if possible, eliminate a medical procedure that had some really, really unpleasant aspects just due to, you know, the experience of having you know, this like thick, smelly adhesive applied to you. You had to wait a long time for the material to cure and, and sort of collect the information that the physicians were looking for. At a high level, the device was essentially a high-powered curing light that was designed to cure this material as quickly as possible. So it was designed to distribute light, distribute throughout the whole sort of area of interest and ensure that everything that was placed in there cured very quickly so that it could be removed and sort of create an impression of the area that we were trying to look at. 
alongside that curing system, we were developing the adhesive as well. So we were trying to design an adhesive that met the needs of the clinicians and met the needs of the procedure and ultimately, you know, worked with our device to deliver that overall sort of vision for the product. So what happened was for the most part, our, our iterations and our development of the product was working pretty well. We had a lot of good success on bench models. You know, we were kind of taking incremental steps to make our test more comprehensive, more complete. And we got fairly late in the program and we suddenly started finding these issues where the material that we were using, the adhesive, just wasn't curing as well as it has been in the past or we expected it to given what a lot of our, our collection, our data collection up until that point had been. And, you know, I think this is an area where, you know, the, the client, the team that we were working with at the time sort of immediately narrowed in on that lighting system, the design of it and its functionality as the root cause and really spent a lot of time and pushed the team to spend a lot of time trying to, you know, improve that design, you know, try and find ways to reduce, you know, the losses that were occurring in the system, try and increase the energy that was coming out of the end of the device and sort of producing that curing function. And ultimately, you know, what we found as we sort of continued down this path and as we kind of kept rolling and started changing things and started sort of evolving is after, you know, a couple of months of work, it, it had almost turned into a complete redesign and even reimagining of the product. It was totally changing the application. It was totally changing like what the clinician's experience was going to be. It went from sort of a small, sleek device to potentially a very large device that had to be plugged into the wall because the, the end result of that sort of series of investigations was to get the energy, to get the power that was needed. We had to just go totally down a different path than we'd originally been investigating. However, I think if we if we actually kind of roll back to what the root cause was, and, and as we understood it a little bit later on, the ultimate issue was actually that there was a small change in the material formulation. So the actual material that we were curing and trying to harden, sort of for marketing reasons, we had decided to add a small amount of colorant to that material so that it sort of was more visible and that it could, could sort of better meet that need for the clinicians. And what we found is that that additive ultimately produced like orders of magnitude or required orders of magnitude, more energy to get full penetration and ultimately cure that material. And so, you know, it's hindsight 2020, right. But I think it's, it's kind of hard to say like in this scenario, you know, we almost kind of went down the path of resolution before we really understood the problem and took the time to address that. Because the question there is, you know, well, if we just removed that additive, was the product good enough? Would it have done enough work for the clinicians or could we maybe investigate alternatives, right? Could there be another way that we achieve that color and that visibility that the clinicians were looking for without affecting the performance of the system that we were ultimately trying to take to market? Mm -hmm. So I think we're coming to the end. And I, I want to know, like, is there anything else that you kind of wanted to speak about on this topic that we haven't covered already? I mean, I think probably the, the thing that I, you know, maybe try and wrap up with sort of in a, a little bit of abbreviated way is, you know, I, I think I can't painted kind of a, a dismal picture of, of, of how to do it and how this development process goes. And I, I think really the, the thought, and I think the thing that's probably important to four teams, four groups that are trying to work through this R and D space to sort of work through is really just like, how do you manage this, right? How do you start to build a system, build a process to help you work through issues like this? And I think Generally speaking, I, I don't think it's anything that's super 
surprising. I don't think it's anything that's super novel, but I think it's really, I, I would like to just, I think, talk through like generally the sort of three steps or the approach that I think I and a, and a lot of folks at Cymatica take to this type of troubleshooting. Because I think really the important thing is it doesn't really matter what the process is. And, you know, the one that I described may or may not be one that, that works for other people. But I think it's just important that the team develops some consistency that they use as problems pop up. I think it's really easy to try and treat every problem like a unique problem, try and approach it and, and solve it in different ways. But I think from a general strategy and how to approach and assess these types of unexpected things, I think you know ultimately a consistent approach is really what helps you understand the scale and the potential impacts of, of what's going to happen. I think you know the first step and the, the most important part, which you know, I think sounds really obvious, but I think is a, a good thing to just sort of stress and make sure is clear to people is that, you know, it's really important to take the time when that failure happens or when the bad news is delivered or when something unexpected happens to not just jump straight into solving it, not just jump straight into addressing the issue. And I think it's actually really important to take a step back as a whole team, you know, whether it's just an internal team, whether it's a, you know, a relationship like Zymatica and one of our clients to sort of take a step back as a, as a program, as a team, and basically just understand like what happened and, and really take that moment to say like, just because we saw a failure, right? Just because it didn't work in this scenario, just because we saw something that we don't like, is this really a problem? You know, I think going back to the, the material example, I spoke through a little bit, right? In that case, like it really wasn't a device issue. It was really more of an ecosystem issue where we just had made a decision without the right context. And we needed to kind of go back to the drawing board and figure out what the path forward was. And so by jumping straight into solving the problem, we didn't take that time to figure out how else we might want to address the issue or, or, or go through it. Really the way we do that, and I think the, the way to do that is to always go back to sort of your core requirements or the core need of the product. What is it trying to do? What does the user need to do with it? What does the technology need to be successful? And ultimately, if the problem doesn't seem to affect those core bullets or the thing that you saw doesn't affect those core needs, that it's really not something that probably deserves the time in a program that's going to be budget or, or time constrained already. Obviously, if we had infinite time and infinite budget, we'd want to improve all things. We don't want to fix all of the issues and make sort of the product that we're trying to accomplish as good as possible. I think kind of the second step is after you've taken that time and you've kind of confirmed that it's a real problem, I think the next step is actually to really invest in data collection, really understand what happened, really understand the impacts, really understand you know, what you may need to do to better inform your solutioning. I think in a lot of cases, problems might seem to have an obvious answer, but if you don't do the work to kind of get behind the scenes and figure out what happened or what is causing the issue, you might just end up in a situation where you make a rapid change and suddenly you're hitting another problem that ultimately comes from the same root cause. I think this is an area that gets sometimes tricky because it can seem expensive. It can seem like a large delay to the program to take you know, a couple of weeks and do a failure investigation to, you know, design and run some tests or to seek alternative suppliers for something that's happening. But ultimately, by taking that time, it means that when you get to the solution portion of the activity, you know all of the options, you know all of the possible routes that you could take from that failure. 
And that's really what helps you drive the program towards hopefully success, right? You can choose the path that hopefully has the least resistance, right? You meet the budget or timeline as close as possible. You don't need to redesign large aspects of the system, or you know, maybe you don't have to redo some expensive clinical testing that you were leveraging earlier in the program development. And then kind of the final one, once you've got those two pieces and you, you kind of know what the problem is and, and all aspects of it, the final step ultimately is to solution. And I think that solutioning step, unfortunately, goes back to team level. It's not a good idea to have you know, a really independent team doing the solutioning without all of those perspectives that we kind of touched on earlier. I think we see a lot inexperienced teams will you know, let the engineering team drive the solution forward which might mean that at the end of the, de- the development cycle, that product isn't usable or, you know, we've compromised too much on how that the clinician is going to ultimately do the treatment or use the device. And then that, that ultimately ends up with a product that's not successful. I think vice versa. Sometimes, you know, if we drive the decisions purely based on user input, purely based on, you know, the design vision and the human factors and needs of the product, we might have actually backed ourselves into a corner where the development is now extremely complicated. It's going to take a very sophisticated mechanism, a very sophisticated design to deliver that vision. And so you really kind of need to find that middle ground where you check as many of the boxes as possible. And that's what's going to allow the program to move forward and hopefully you know, stay within those expectations and ultimately be successful. That's very enlightening and very interesting to hear through that thought process. So thank you for sharing. I have one, I actually two more questions for you. And this is more for yourself. Like I said at the beginning of the episode, I feel like there's kind of a small mission behind like this podcast of like helping like younger people or people looking to enter the medical device industry, like opening their eyes to like what all different types of jobs or like opportunities there are. But for you and being, you know, going to school, be an engineer, why did you go into the medical space? I mean, the, I think the answer for a lot of people, I think who end up in medical is the belief or the, the hope that the work that we're doing ultimately will help somebody. And I think that's an area where particularly R&D is, is always tough. I mean, again, a, a lot of R&D projects are not successful, but I think the stuff that, you know, at least keeps me going to work every day and, and helps drive, I think a lot of the teams that I've worked with in the past is that that belief that the, the work that we're doing, the technology that we're working through could change someone's life in, in some minor or major way. And that's ultimately, I think, what drove me down the path of medical versus you know, something more consumer or something like aerospace. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Alan, for coming on to the podcast today. If anyone that's listening and, you know, wants to work with you on an R&D project or just reach out to you in general, what is the best way to contact you? Probably best to give you my email address. Mm-hmm. And that is A. Humphrey, which is H-U-M-P-H-R-E-Y at Zymedica.com. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. At Nemec, our mission is to support medtech and digital health startups expedite the developmental process in order for their ideas to realize commercial success and ultimately provide value to the patients they serve. Learn more about how we can support your startup's path to commercialization at www.nemeccenter.com. That's N-E-M-I-C-E-N-T-E-R.com. 
We put out new episodes of MedTech Monday every other Monday. If you have a story, guest, or an idea for a MedTech Monday episode, please reach out to us at info at nemiccenter.com. That's info at N-E-M-I-C-E-N-T-E-R dot com. Thanks for tuning in.